and imprecatory psalms. We were looking at this study, and as I started it, I thought, well, this will be probably one or two months I'll be in the psalms looking at imprecatory psalms, but it's been, to me, such a good series as I study it, I I just said, well, we're going to cover them and just keep going, and there's a lot of them, all right, Uh, where the writer, uh, most of them, David, uh, prays for God's uh, deliverance and also God's judgment. And that's the imprecatory nature of the psalm. Uh, And as I said, when I probably for years, I have struggled sometimes on how to pray. Uh, I think I still struggle on that. And I can always say this, that the Lord, and it says the, the, the Spirit makes intercession for us in groanings that cannot be uttered. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is he does fix our prayers, okay? And the, the, the proper prayer, as we pour out our heart to God, um, God hears exactly what that is, even when we can't even speak it. You know, we can't even utter words because words don't describe it. And my situation in my life has never been one of been, like, as I compare myself to sometimes other Christians who have faced great trials, trials beyond what I have ever faced and I often I have my own trials that have come but I've often come to those times and I've said Lord especially when it's maybe one that you're praying for deliverance of something or someone and how do you pray and what should we pray and I I think of course Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament teach us to pray for our enemies and to share the gospel with all right that's the hope that God has is that he would Uh, like men to repent everywhere all right and that none should perish but all should come to repentance and understanding and that's part of the will of God nevertheless there are those that will not repent and those that will commit great evil and I think it's proper to pray against those that commit great evil and will not repent I think always coupled with God's mercy and grace extended to them but Lord you have your way and God will have his way, and that's always the way. So that, anyways, that imprecatory nature, that how do I pray, and what should I ask? And so we come to this one, Psalm 58, and this one is a little, I think, even more direct than some of the ones we've read. And I want to read down through these 11 verses here. And the title to this is The Just Judgment of the Wicked. And it is written to the chief musician set to Do Not Destroy a Mictum of David. Verse 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers. Charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if it cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, 
Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you recognizing you are the God and judge of all the earth. And Lord, we pray even now that, oh God, we would cast ourselves before you, the righteous judge. And Lord, we would turn to you. Pray for our nation and for our leaders and for the world leaders and those in positions of influence, O oh God, that they would repent and turn to you before it is too late. And ultimately we know, Lord, you will judge the earth in righteousness. And we thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we have this psalm, and as you read down through it, it's pretty harsh when David, especially that imprecatory part, when he talks about breaking their teeth and plucking out their fangs and and uh, the judgment of God and the quick wrath of God calling that and all those things and sometimes as I said as I've gone through the psalms I'm sort of uncomfortable in that like wow am I supposed to really pray like that or pray like David prayed and mind you again uh, David is praying in he's praying in the sense that this was a time in his life when Saul had hounded him and chased him and had exiled him for years, had attempted to take his life on numerous occasions, and yet David was faithful in all those years to Saul, not to kill him even when he had opportunity to do that. But yet I find the same David that would not raise his hand against Saul, as he saw as Saul had been the Lord's anointed, because the Lord had installed Saul, even though the Lord later came along and said, Saul, you've, you've basically relinquished your your uh, de- your your kingliness or your kingly position because of your wickedness and um, David was anointed the next king Saul didn't step aside and David didn't take the opportunity to be the instrument of God's vengeance and yet he prayed for vengeance and he prayed that God would avenge and be righteous in that or that the righteous would win and that's sort of this imprecatory nature as we look at it in this psalm understandably uh, Saul led the nation down a, a path of political and spiritual ruin. And he disobeyed God's law and he opposed the next king, the anointed king, right, which was David. And he opposed in, in that way God's will in that. And it didn't work out well for Saul in the end, did it? Um, yet during those years, and they were years, you'd think that Uh, it would have been something speedy if God said to David and sent the prophet Samuel to anoint him as king that he would have installed him right away but he doesn't and so as part of that I mean we wouldn't have these a lot of these imprecatory psalms if Saul hadn't hounded David and he wouldn't have had that great struggle and the exile in years uh, away and yet Saul surrounded himself during that time with uh, a whole group of Uh, people that were compliant with his evil deeds and some of them went further than others and you can look at first samuel chapter 22 we've made that analogy before in in that case remember saul had doeg the edomite go and kill uh himelech and his all the priests like 85 of the men that were there and then the women and the children because they had helped david and yet they had done so just in giving aid to David. And uh, those things went on. And that was taking their sword against the priests. Those that were uh, opposed to you know, Saul's sin. And he did great wickedness with that. And you can look at that. But, but basically Saul surrounded himself by people 
that were also evil. And not all of them. And there were some, as a matter of fact, in that instance, you read that account in uh, 1 Samuel 22, and you find out that the guards of Saul wouldn't raise the sword against the priests. They feared God, and they feared God more than the king. And so he ended up having Doeg, the Edomite, do it. You can always find someone who's willing to, to do your business <clears throat> in that. Anyways, David had been treated uh, terribly. Um, what was done to him was illegal against their own law of the Jews, Moses' law. And the murder that was committed against David's men and, and plotted against him uh, rose and was always before him in that. And this psalm was probably written late in David's exile. And so you sense almost even a more urgency for God to avenge the righteous. And it's interesting that as you go through the Bible, the final book that you come to is the book of Revelation. And that also will be the call of the righteous in that time to avenge their blood. And so there is this idea of God the judge who will judge the earth and he'll do it rightly the world's judges today don't always get it right and some of them purposely get it wrong so that's the world we live in this is very much a uh, a a psalm that preaches against those who are committing evil deeds in particular leaders that were doing that and on the backdrop although his name isn't mentioned there is saul and that's not he's by the way david was not the only one that did that right uh, later on, you would have other prophets like Isaiah, and you read some of the, the verses in Isaiah that deal with that. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23 says, Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. Sounds like our politicians today. Wow. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will, run, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Isaiah is prophesying both near-term and far-term. There's kingdom language in that. And there's uh, really, I believe, the institution of righteousness again on this earth will be at the second coming of Christ, ultimately. He goes on to say, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Isaiah is speaking forth the word of God, and it was quite a hard message to a nation and to those that were uh, working evil in that. Micah is another one, and by the way, a lot of the prophets, Amos and Micah, and I mean, there's, there's several, but Micah chapter 3, look at how he describes it. And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil. Wow. That was the commentary on the day when Micah is prophesying. People 
loved evil and hated good. In Isaiah, he says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. And I believe in my lifetime, and I'm looking at it in my nation, I'm seeing more of a a division that has arose where it's not so much there's middle ground to meet on, it's good and evil. It's that simple. There isn't a middle ground to compromise because in doing so you compromise with evil and in evil actions. And for the Christian, that is going to be a hard place to find yourself because we are there and we have got to come to the conclusion we're going to make some hard decisions in the next generation or less as we stand firm. And it may cost many people um, dearly. It may, I, I don't know how, how that will go, but world history is filled with times of persecution and times where evil reigned for a season. Look what it goes on to say. Who stripped the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who also eat the flesh of my people, flay the skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. It sounds like what we're doing in our nation with people calling to remove their children (laughs) and stripping their generations to come. We live in a state where it's perfectly legal to kill your child in the womb and your grandchild and your great-grandchild and your great-great-grandchild because that's what happens when you take a child. You kill all the generations that would come from that child. And we live in a state where they not only permit that, they encourage it and they make all of us pay for it with tax money. I find that appalling, appalling, and God will have the last word on that. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. There comes a time where people will no longer be able to repent. And you see that in the book of Romans where it says, and God gave them over to a reprobate mind, right? There comes a time where it's impossible to renew such a one unto repentance. That's Hebrews chapter 6. And I believe that's a dangerous place to be when you are hellbent would be the term I would use on committing evil acts there comes a time where you will not have repentance even if you seek it wow if I was not a Christian today and I heard that I would hope that I would flee to him and say Lord forgive me because we're all sinners by the way and we're all in that same race of people Adam's race and we all can end up doing the worst of things if we don't repent In Micah chapter 3, in verse 9, Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins in the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And that's exactly what was going to happen, sadly, to the nation and to Jerusalem at that time, when eventually they'd be led off into captivity, and it would be utter destruction. And I would say that is the destiny for any nation that forgets God. That's a scary thought. Micah chapter 7. 
Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire, and so they scheme together. And may I just throw in this comment, I think in our nation, and I, I, I love our, our people and our country, I really do, but I am seeing a turning going on very quickly in our nation. And I mean that, and I don't want to you know, discourage our younger people in this, this place, because you're the ones that also will have to fight for some of this stuff. But I'm seeing this turn, and we are living in a world run by people who want to elect themselves, get themselves power, and then give themselves money. And that's exactly what, in this case, in Micah, uh, he warns against the conditions of their times, and it brought hastily God's judgment. The great man utters his evil desire, and so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father and daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Those are the times in which... Um, are, are precede God's judgment. It's interesting, there are other sins that show up, and you look at times of judgment that were, you know, in times past, and there were certainly great times of evil in the days of Noah, right before the flood, and it says there the condition was from the youngest to the oldest, right? People continually thought to do evil. And we're, we're in that kind of world that it's coming to that. There's still a lot of believers and there's still a lot of righteous people. And praise God, I believe that holds back the judgment of God. It did in, in the nation of Israel for a time. But then in Jeremiah's day, we know that there were, a lot, there were righteous people there and they suffered greatly. And in our Wednesday night study, we've been going through that study uh, entitled The Church in Babylon. And and it's in reference to living in exile and, and living in a world that is hostile. And that's how the Jews found themselves living in Babylon. Not in their land. Their land had been conquered and their temple destroyed. And their people and their little ones dashed against rocks and taken prisoner and led off as slaves. And yet God was going to be faithful and deliver them. And God blessed even the Babylonians because of the righteous people that went to Babylon. And he blessed the next emperor, the Persians, because of the righteous people that lived among them. Think about that. And they lived in hard times. And I think, if anything, we are going to live in times that are very similar. And we need to just be even more so living for Christ and preaching his word and showing forth his mercy and his grace as we do that. Well, this psalm breaks up into three areas. And I'll quickly go down through this. The first one is an accusation. David has an accusation. He says, lawlessness is practiced. And it's a dangerous place to be when you have no law. Or I shouldn't say no law, when lawlessness is practiced. There could be law, but nobody follows it. And I think um, 
to, to remain in, I'm talking as a nation, and the nation of Israel as well, and they were particularly under the law of God, they existed as a nation, and their well-being of their very nation uh, was a result of them following after God's law. And it's a dangerous place where you all of a sudden do away with God's law, and you either become a law unto yourself or make up laws contrary to those things, uh, or you just disregard them entirely. And again, I see that as a sign of the time today where laws are disregarded in all kinds of areas. And they, on the other hand, try to make extra laws that they don't even need to make to try to fix something that they did because they didn't follow a law. You know, those, you see where that goes. Lawlessness reigns. He goes on to say, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? And he, he begins in saying, there's a lot of you keeping your, your mouth shut. And that's a natural tendency. Nobody likes to, oh, I say nobody, but when you're in the minority, in the minority thinking, you don't really want to shake the boat, right? And rock the boat or whatever. But in reality, David says, you're not to be silent. Silence can be a sin if you will not speak up against evil. And I, I believe that. I think when we look in the 1930s um, and the rise of power and like in Europe with Hitler and the you know the sort of the testimony of that day was from Christians we heard the trains going by and knew there were Jews on board but we just sang our hymns louder you know hindsight is 2020 but had I been there, maybe I'd have been part of that group just singing a little louder, even though you knew something wasn't quite right. Thank the Lord there were people that stood up against that and, uh, and, and have done those things. And again, I say that because sometimes it's easy to judge somebody from looking back and having more details about what's going on. But we don't need to stick our, hands, our heads in the sand like an ostrich, right, and think that there's no evil around evil is very much there he says do you judge uprightly you sons of men and the answer is no in heart you work wickedness you weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth struggling for violence struggling for evil struggling for power that's really uh, the the picture david portrays here the wicked are estranged from the womb they go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Now, I do believe the Bible teaches that we all are sinners and we're born in sin. We're actually conceived and even in the womb, we're as little sinners. And we need redemption. We need repentance. We need salvation. And the Bible talks about that and gives us every way to come back to God in repentance. He's provided a way. But he's saying that among wickedness, it, it can even move to a point where even in the womb there's great wickedness and as they're born they're already lying. Uh, I remember a missionary uh, giving a testimony. He worked in um, and Jaira, uh, which is sort of that half of the island of Papua New Guinea and Irian Jaira. Uh, one's in Indonesia. Anyways, he was there, and he, and he, he said this. Um, he said, you know, in the tribe that he ended up working in, uh, he worked in several groups of people, but 
in this one tribe in particular, he said they were given over to demonic worship and they were scared of evil spirits and that led to more demonic worship. They would try to appease the evil spirits and all that. And he made a statement and he was not somebody of the persuasion that you're looking for a demon under every bush, that kind of person, you know. Uh, a, you know, I would say a Christian who was, um, uh, matter of fact, he was a Bob Jones grad uh, and they're not known for their, you know, looking for the devil everywhere and all that stuff. But anyways, he says there were babies born in that um, tribe. He felt that were possessed right from birth, the way they, he, what he saw. And it was because of what the parents had done or the mothers to give them over and to sacrifice to demonic you know, worship and those kind of things. And now I know that sounds a little hokey in our materialistic Western world and all of that, but the reality is that's what goes on. It goes on in our world right here in our civilized so-called world and people are doing that and it says they go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies i don't know how a little one can speak lies right out of the womb but that's the picture you see someone heading that way their poison is like the poison of a serpent there are certain snakes you don't want to get bitten by right Uh, they will cause you rather a quick demise or even a slow demise that is very painful But he says, they are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. And the picture is the the cobra, right? Now, I understand snakes do not have eardrums, just so you know. They don't actually have ears, all right? They do have bones that can sense sound in a sort of rudimentary way. At least that's what they think. I've never asked a snake to know that for sure. But they sense movement, and they can sense heat and those kind of things, and they can prey on their whatever they're seeking or whatever. But uh, a snake, like a particular, the cobra, it, it is charmed by someone, it's drawn by that. Doesn't, it isn't the tune. They're not listening to the tune. They're seeing the motion. And you've seen the snake charmers out there, right, in India or somewhere else like that. And the picture is that, someone charming a snake. But the snake really isn't listening. And the snake, obviously, is a representative of evil, right? That's what the serpent was in Genesis 3. He was cursed to crawl in his belly. And, and he's a representative of, of Satan. Now, I'm not saying snakes are that way. Don't go out and just start chopping up snakes because you think that. That's not the point. The point is this, that the snake, he says, these evil people are like that. They, they are charmed, but then they stop being charmed, right? They move on to the next thing as soon as... The people around them tell them something different. And that evil bent that is there. This lawlessness that is practiced. Beware of that. In that. By the way, the righteous brings about in their words, you know, stuff that heals, right? Um, In Proverbs chapter 12, it says this. There is one who speaks like piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. The tongue of the wise promotes health. I like that. Not only physical health, but spiritual health, right? When you bring the word of God to somebody, sometimes you have to tell them, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's evil. It, it, what, what you're engaged in will bring judgment upon you, your family, and your nation someday if you continue to do that. And that's not doing so because you want to commit vengeance on them, but rather it's warning them. Because the Bible warns us of those things, right? And we're to speak truth, but we're to do it 
according to what Jesus says, speak it in love, right? Speak the truth in love. That ought to be why we want to do that. He goes on to say this, that um, in verse 6, he says, Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. And I, I came to that verse this week, and I was looking at that and thinking, Wow, that is quite a harsh prayer. And he's not talking about, you know, he's talking about evil people, people doing evil things. And David says, break their mouth, their teeth. I, I don't think it's improper to pray when you see someone stand up who's a leader, in your, whether it's in your nation or in the world somewhere, and they speak great evil things, and they commit great evil acts, to say, Lord, give them a toothache, a good one. Maybe they'll, they'll shut their mouth. Because David prayed to that end. And I think it's good to say, hey, break their fangs, right? They're biting into everybody else. Well, why don't you just take those teeth out? God can do that, can't he? And I think we ought to always, as I said, couple our prayer with saying, Lord, may they find repentance and be saved. That would be what you'd want. Nevertheless, Lord, you know your will be done. And Lord, if they're going to continue to this evil bent, break their, their jaw, right? Uh, and that's figurative, right? But it's, it's true. How many people who had their teeth just yanked out would be up there today speaking, you know, and saying, oh, this is what we should be doing. Be, I think they'd be home going, oh, you know. And I don't think that's as harsh as, uh, as what could be prayed, right? You see these imagery of lions and serpents. And by the way, that's... Uh, imagery that carries through into the new testament as well satan himself is likened to a lion a devouring lion seeking whom he may devour right and he also um in genesis 3 and this is alluded to by paul second corinthians eleven three. but i fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in christ he warned there he said that serpent is the devil is very crafty and uh, beware of that. And it's easy to get caught up in things, but keep the faith simple and the basic things and be right with God in that simplicity in that. Well, there is an accusation. That's the lawlessness practice. And then there's condemnation. Lawlessness punished. And David reminds of that. And, and verse 6 there we've already read. Um, but he calls for punishment. And mind you, this would have been written out as a, a song of deliverance, but it's a song calling on God to punish the enemies. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. And those are pretty harsh things, and the, the language that uh, David is using there are you know, pretty graphic, if you think about it. I say graphic, especially the stillborn child. And he says, basically, let them be like a stillborn child. Well, a stillborn child has no life in him and her, and, and if they don't have life, they can't do anything, right? And that's what he says. That's pretty harsh. The other imagery that he says there, I, he says, let them 
flow away as waters which run continually. You know, you see a, a stream as it goes on and it just it flows on. And he says, let the wicked be like that. Let them move on. And when he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if it cut in pieces. That his weapons, whatever they are, let them fail. If that person raises a pen to write some new order or some law or whatever it is, may it fail. Let them be like a snail, which melts away as it goes. I kind of think of that in the sun, right? How many? I remember sometimes you go out there on the pavement and you'll see where a slug or a snail has crawled somewhere in the night and as it was going along it left that nice slimy mucus trail right and then over here you see this dried up shriveled up snail or slug or whatever else that you see and the sun got it because it couldn't get out of the way in time and he says let the wicked be like that the snail's going along and thinks he's fast but he's not that fast the sun comes up and it's too late and that's exactly what will be the demise of those that do not repent they will find the wrath of god will be quick when it comes oh for now they can slither on their way but he will have the last word and as i said that i believe that vengeance in itself is reserved for god david even though he had opportunity to take vengeance on saul he did not he allowed god to work that out And will God sometimes use people and circumstances and events to do that? Yes, absolutely. But for the believer, our recourse is to go to God and let God do that. And the book of Deuteronomy reminds us of that, right? Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. And always remember that. That if someone is hell-bent on evil... That's their demise. They're, they're, their foot is going to slip. That's it. And there won't be anybody there. God would rather see them repent and be saved. But the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things to come hasten upon them. And they don't even know it because they're bent on committing evil. In Romans, that's requoted. Romans 12. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, Paul says. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Now, that isn't defend yourself, right? I do believe that the Bible allows for personal defense and national defense, in the, even in the taking of a life, uh, in the defense of you and others. That is something that falls under, under that category. But vengeance is reserved for government Uh, and under the hand of God or under the authority of God Uh, and also ultimately the vengeance that is talked about here as Paul says isn't for the church it isn't for Christians to go out there and avenge or seek blood that's the world's filled with all those kind of things you know someone kills somebody and then they go back and they go kill their you know loved one and back and forth back and forth and wars start and that's human history imagine if we actually said Vengeance belongs to God. It would be different, wouldn't it? And as as it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we're reminded that that is the way it is. And certainly there were unjust judges during David's time. 
He says they were liars. Um, you see the fact that they were also to be punished. And really there were a lot of innocent people suffering because of the disobedience of people and the leaders in that day. And there will be a lot of suffering now and in the future. And it has been throughout history when evil rears its head and is not in, and continues to do so in that. Still, I think of a lion without teeth. They're pretty severely limited in their attack. And snails don't really run that fast, right? And their demise will come. Well, lastly, you have vindication. And the righteousness is praised. And so you have accusation, condemnation, and then vindication. And as I've said before, not original to me, but I'm reminded of that, in the end, we always win. Because God wins. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Righteousness is praised. Everybody can still do evil. And I think of that picture in Micah's time, you know, the prophet Micah where he says there is none that is doing righteous no righteousness and it may appear that way and yet there were still people in Micah's day that were righteous and there'll still be people righteous even in the great tribulation that will fall upon this earth someday and God will have his people in every part of that and he knows exactly where every one of them is And they will be vindicated. Even if they are killed, they will be vindicated in that. He likens them this way. He says, before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The picture there is uh, um, thorns that grew in the desert. They were these dry, thorny bushes, and they were like little pieces of tinder. And you could start a fire with them, but if they wouldn't burn long enough for you to heat up your pot to cook anything. And so they were, we say uh, of somebody, he was just a flash in the pan, you know. And, and that's sort of, you know, a picture of gunpowder fi- gun burning in a, in a pan in an old musket, right? And that, I think that's where that arose, that an- analogy, but a flash in the pan. Just quickly, he's bright and then he's out, just like that. And David is reminded that in the grand timing of everything, even the most wicked and evil of people that will arise in our lifetime or in past or in the present uh, and future, you know what? They are just a flash in the pan. Thank God they are. That it won't be forever because he's going to put them away forever, away from him. And it says he shall take them away as with a whirlwind. Someday it's just going to be like that. I, I think of the picture there of a whirlwind, a tornado sort of is what is referred to there and somebody's sitting there and the day is nice and all of a sudden here comes the tornado and they're done they're gone a few seconds it's over as his living and burning wrath we are reminded that god is not dead he's alive he's living jesus christ is alive He who was dead and is now alive, the Bible says in the book of Revelation. And he is the one who holds the title deed to earth. And someday he's going to redeem earth. And he's going to do so in his wrath. But yet even in his wrath he shows forth the mercy. And that's the kind of savior that we have. 
He still will call people to repent, even up to the very end. They will have opportunity. And I think of that in the book of Revelation. It talks about, um, remember, you have the churches that are addressed there in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the churches were to be a lighthouse to the world. And they also represent particular parts of church ages, I believe, or the history of the church. Um, But then after that, after you see the... uh, tribulation unfold and the church is not present during that time i believe they're raptured out before uh will be part of that if if that was in god's timing and uh after that you have israel again being a lighthouse and yet the nature of the tribulation period is to really judge the earth and yet he'll send out 144,000 witnesses that will go out that's what the book of revelation says they're jewish evangelists And they will be divinely protected to go out into the far corners of the world. I believe they'll take up where the church left off in missions. Then you have the, remember the two witnesses beyond that that will be proclaiming. And they will be seen by the world. And you can certainly imagine today that's easy. Somebody can go live stream something right now. And if the world wants to watch it, they can watch it. Anywhere, pretty much. Then you have Jesus himself that will come back. And all those, that time will be a time, a space to repent. And yet, there will be people who repent, but there will be a lot that don't. And he'll judge them. As, is, as in his living and burning wrath. Verse 10. The righteous shall rejoice. And I like this. This is where he ends on a high note. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. David is not just looking at the here and now. The imagery is sort of like that because the picture is of a conquering army or a conquering soldier, someone who's out there and he's the righteous one. He sees the vengeance of God on his enemies and then he goes into the spoils of the camp of the enemy and he takes the spoils of war off the dead bodies of the soldiers that are there. And in doing so, he's covered in their blood. Or perhaps it's from the battle that went on as well. And it says, he shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. That indicates this. In a day and age where people cut each other with swords and spears and all the other things to kill each other. As you went through those bodies to take the spoils of war from them, your feet would be covered in their blood. And it was indication that you were victorious. And I'm reminded that Jesus is victorious. And he's victorious even over sin. And he's washed us with his blood. We who were the enemies of God. He's extended grace and salvation to. And yet he also will tread out the wine press of his enemies someday. And his feet again will be covered in blood righteously. But it will be against the enemies of God. Isaiah 63 talks about that. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one has or was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury their blood is sprinkled upon my garments 
and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. That's pretty harsh language that Isaiah is prophesying there, and and he's referring to the Messiah coming in his vengeance. And Isaiah both prophesied the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the second coming. And he didn't prophesy the in-between of some of it, and it was still a mystery the age of grace in which we live now. And you picture here one who's the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. He's like a lamb who's led to the slaughter, right? And his garments there were were stripped from him and his body was covered in blood, his own blood. But he's coming again and when he comes again, he's the victorious king who will return and seek vengeance on all those who are against God. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah when he comes again. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And in the other words, he wins. <laughs> and what is done in between is, is something that man has extended a certain amount of grace and mercy in the process. And it's a wonder sometimes that he doesn't just judge us now, but he is long suffering toward us, right? And I'm thankful he's that kind of God. Revelation chapter 14 is another description here. Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. There there is a picture here of God's judgment that will only occur when it's fully ripe. I look out there, and in my human judgment, which is lacking, I say, well, it must be close. It has to be close. Those grapes are ripe. He says, not quite yet. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,640. Uh, furlongs wow David ends that Psalm 58 with this he says so that men will say surely there is a reward for the righteous surely he is God who judges in the earth the reason David prays this Psalm this imprecatory Psalm is is concluded in that last verse Because there is a reward for those who are righteous. He notes that. And there's a reward that's eternal for those that will live for him and be right in a world that's perverse and evil. And then he says, surely he is God who judges in the earth. Someday that will be the final statement. He is God and he judges the earth. And we ought to be thankful for that. Otherwise, it would be destined to get worse and worse and worse with no hope. Praise him for who he is and that he's our Savior. Lord, again, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that the 
God of all the earth is also the judge of all. And Lord, you will sift out every evil action that's ever taken place. I pray even today, Lord, that people, including leaders and others, Lord, would, would, uh, they would throw themselves before you as a merciful God and seek repentance before it's too late. I pray to that end. I pray for our state leaders, our community leaders, our, our national leaders, our international leaders, oh God, that they would come to faith in Christ. And yet, Lord, I also know there's those that are committing great evil and seek to destroy righteousness in every way. And Lord, I pray you'd hinder them in that, in ever, any way you see fit. We leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.